In a 2019 interview, talk show host Trevor Noah asked Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg if she thought that the climate change conversation in America was different from how it was elsewhere in the world. She told him, In America, climate change is being discussed as if it was something you can believe in or not believe in. Where I come from, she said, it's a fact. To our global listeners, if you've ever wondered what it would be like to live in a place where climate change is a political stance, listen in as I talk with two earthkeepers who live and thrive in the American South. To our American listeners, maybe you already know what that's like. Stay with us as we consider what it means to stand for truth and advocate for the earth in the face of cultural resistance. Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like hearts and mind. People who believe that earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and in this episode, we'll be talking to Rachel Jones, who teaches at a college in Tennessee, and Jason Lyle, who leads an international nonprofit and serves in the church in Georgia. Both live in places where there is cultural ambivalence about the importance of earthkeeping, and for some, even outright denial of climate change realities. Rachel and Jason, though, have each found creative ways to express their love of creation and to speak out of their passion for environmental justice in ways that don't shut down the conversation. And when you go, you talk to people, you don't have to be combative, you don't have to be, you don't have to be abrasive. You just have to have a love, a love for God, a love for the person you're talking to and a love for the creation that you stand on. So listen to the person across from you talk. No matter what viewpoint they have, if you think they're, you know, the biggest idiot to ever walk the face of the earth, you know, God spoke to an ass one time, he can still do it again across the table from you. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers Podcast. So, Rachel and Jason, maybe you could both tell me a bit about the work that you do, and in particular, what are the things that you do in your work that, that help you to engage issues of earth care? Rachel, let's start with you. So I'm the director of social work at a university in Tennessee, and I'm able to use kind of my platform here to educate students on environmental justice and earth care. I think like last year, I was able to teach a class on the healing effects of nature. And then this fall, I'm teaching an elective on environmental justice. And so it's one of my focal points within kind of the broad realm of social work. And so I'm able to kind of teach on everything from kind of nature therapy all the way up to environmental justice um, and how those connect and how they benefit people um, or kind of degrade the earth and people alike. And so it's a really interesting kind of spectrum that I get to teach on. And that's how I'm kind of utilizing that space currently. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jason? Well, I um, work in Uganda to help create systems of sustainable economic growth. So 
most of our work is done in that realm, a little bit more of developing systems, a little bit more philosophical, a little bit more implementation, but implementation through the, the, the folks that are on the ground there. Now, it's, what's kind of cool is there's already understanding in Uganda about commercial fertilizers and about how to use compost. And so there's some interesting things going on there. But the platform, I would say, more that I use is, is less in Uganda and more at church. I uh, attend a church to volunteer, at times get to preach there, at other times just to get the ears of leadership and ears of people that are around me to talk about social justice or environmental justice issues that revolve around social justice as it all ties together. Mainly, it's just a uh, subject that I'm pretty passionate about myself. So try to evangelize for it anytime I can. And, and, you know, everything that I do seems to come back to ethos and the person that I'm talking to, what theirs is and, and what mine is. And so always trying to be mindful of that when I have those conversations. So not to be pushy, but at the same time to be honest and truthful. One of the things that concerns the listeners to this podcast in particular is learning how to speak truth in contexts that sometimes resist certain truths, especially about the environment or say climate change or environmental justice. And those resistances tend oftentimes to be culturally centered. They, they come out of the way people have grown up. They come out of the worldview that's pervasive in the places that they live. And so people who I think care more about creation care in those contexts sometimes find it difficult to know how to speak, to know how to be persuasive, to know how to, to stand for what they know is true, even in the face of resistance that might actually be dominant in their culture context. So we're very interested to hear about your context and what resistances you face and, and maybe how you deal with it as well. So Rachel, maybe tell us about your teaching context, but, but also the broader culture context around that particular environment. So I am in East Tennessee, kind of in central Appalachia. And a lot of our students that we have here are coming from more conservative evangelical backgrounds. And so when I talk of environmental justice, when I'm talking of climate change as scientific fact, for some of my students, that's the first time that they've heard it presented in that way. A lot of what we see in the South is you either believe in climate change or you don't. There's this belief about it. It's not taken as scientific fact. So learning how to work in that space and recognizing where my students are coming from is really important for me to help them be critical thinkers on the topic. I don't want necessarily to be teaching them something and expect them to just believe me. And so I want to present it in a way that challenges their thinking and their worldview that maybe they're coming from. This is just very pervasive in this area. Climate change is also very kind of politically charged in this area. Absolutely. So taking that into consideration as well of my students are kind of coming from usually a broad spectrum and social work students more particularly are a little bit more progressive maybe 
than um, other students and other majors. But because it's so politically charged here in the South, honestly, it sometimes is just kind of seen as this liberal agenda. And it's really kind of shut down very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of find that common ground. You have to find that space where you both are to really kind of begin addressing it. And so that may be coming from a faith perspective, that may be coming from scientific fact and kind of figuring out how to kind of merge those in a way to kind of build a conversation and to challenge worldview is really what I try to do in my classes. Mm -hmm. Jason, how about you? I mean, your context is different, but you share some of those characteristics, I understand. For me, I grew up with a love of nature period. I love the outdoors. I love to be outside. I love to hunt and fish and conservation. And a lot of people see hunting and fishing as taking resources, but really those of us who do hunt and fish actually love the resource more than most because we care about the management of it. And so, of course, a big part of that has always been earth care, like habitat, but not also habitat, not only habitat for the animals, but habitat for us. In my context, it usually comes down to I try to find, get people in more of a centrist position and avoid the political conversation altogether. Because if we, if we ever dip into politics, we've got into a place that is so murky and dark that nobody can find their way out. I try to stay in, in the rational. So tell me, do you remember winters in the 1970s? Because we live in Georgia, right? So we go from 103 to 16 in a 12-month period of time. It's crazy down here what we can get. When they'll say, well, yeah, I remember the 70s in Georgia. There was ice storms every year. There was snow every year in Atlanta. There was, you know, dipping, freezing cold temperatures every year in Atlanta. And I don't remember temperatures like that since the late 90s. And so I kind of start with those conversations. And then of late, I can go a little further into that conversation when people will bring, when we have the climate change conversation, the weather patterns are different. Like now, People think I'm crazy, but our weather patterns are vastly different. I, man, I was wearing a jacket in June one morning in Atlanta. It was so cool, and the wind was blowing. It was unbelievable. And we're getting rain every afternoon like you should get in the south. We're getting evening thunderstorms where in years past it's been very dry, very hot, or either it rained all the time. It's like we're on a bit of a normal cycle. Now, I'm not a meteorologist. But I do have a brain and I can think. And when I start, that's where I start. I bring up these conversations. Do you remember? Could we agree? Don't you think that there are better ways of doing things? What we run into where we are is, you know, you're, you're either a hipster vegan who is all in or you're, you know, a gun carrying radical right side whatever. And we have this kind of a, a weird group that sits in the middle that is rational, that is thinking about these things. But at the same time, if the, if the context can't be set in a way, you, you know, you could say, well, at the rate we're going now by 2028, there's going to be places on earth that are in, uninhabitable. And that would just completely turn some people off. But if you say, hey, at the rate we're going now, you know, we're really going to have a deeper impact by 2028. So when you start having these conversations now, what do you think? I tend to get a little bit more ground there. As Rachel said, living in the South, man, it is, this, 
climate change is not tied to science. It is tied to politics. Mm -hmm. So you have to break down that political barrier. You, you have to, you know, if you start to like climate change, people say, oh, you must be a liberal. Well, no, actually I'm a human being is what mm -hmm. I am. So mm -hmm. there, I don't, I don't like being labeled as anything. I, I'm Jason, you know, but that is tied deeply in the South that if you believe in, in the right to bear arms, you must be a conservative. If you believe in climate change, well, you must be a liberal when maybe neither one of those things are tied to a political party. They're just tied to the ability to think for yourself. And so that's uh, which that's what I challenge people to do anyhow is just think for yourself. Think logically. Don't listen to what someone else tells you, but, but listen to it and take it along with your own thought process and your own study and your own ability to make up your own mind and, and decide for yourself. And so that's kind of where I start is a little bit more on that rational ground of what do we see happening, which is extremely important. I think what I hear you talking about here is that you have found a particular avenue in, a way to open a door to conversation, because oftentimes the mention of these issues can shut conversation down. And in fact, honestly, this is why I wanted to talk to the two of you, because I know that you have these strategies, that you've had to develop these strategies because you care so much about the earth that you can't be silent. And so how do you speak truth to people who who may be prone to, to resistance. And so I love that idea of starting where, with what people can see and feel, what they can actually experience. Rachel, what about you? Do you find that you have found avenues into conversation which, which maybe help disarm people's defensiveness? I really try to approach it from many times a very personal perspective. And so I tell stories of when I have lived in areas ripe with environmental injustice and what that looks like and how it impacts people. It's very difficult to not believe a personal story. And so it can really be a good introduction into climate change and environmental justice of just talking about personal experience of what it was like to live in a space where the environment was not cared for, where pollution and waste were just out of control, and how that impacts people. It has devastating consequences for people when you're looking at public health, such as asthma and cancer rates increase when exposed to toxins. When you just look at quality of life, when people don't have natural resources to burn, I mean, they'll burn plastic and cook their food over burning plastic in the middle of the street. And so they're not only breathing in that burning plastic as they're cooking, but it's contaminating the food that they're then going to eat. And so, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to dispute a personal story of what environmental justice looks like and how it's impacting people that you are also in relationship with. And so I have found that that is a really good introduction to then talking about environmental justice and climate change and what that looks like for vulnerable people around the world. Both of you have referenced your own stories, and that makes me curious about why you care as you care. Why have you chosen lives of advocacy for these issues? Where did that come from? 
you know, that would be a lot of stories strung together. But I, I remember I was never athletic. I didn't play sports. I, I loved to read and I loved to be outside. I remember being a very young man. I remember it being so cold that every part of my body hurt. And that didn't have anything to do with climate change. But I remember sitting under a tree in the wintertime and in my mind thinking, you know, I need to go in and get warm. I was probably eight or nine years old, but I, I was sitting there and I just remember thinking, no, this is where I belong. I remember thinking that, I mean, no, this, this is where I belong. Like I need to, at that young of an age, I think I need to feel this, like, because this is a part of who I am. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I'd want to take off my shirt and just lay in the leaves and just let the leaves cover me because it was something that was just in me that it's symbiotic, right? It's, of course, I didn't know that when I was eight. Then I remember hearing sermons about the Bible, about how we were made out of dirt. And all those things were just tied together when, when you're a child and you hear those things you know, you, well, I'm made out of dirt. Well, that makes sense. Cause I sure do like to have it on me, you know? And so that began it, that, that began that entire process of just a love for nature, a love for the outdoors. And then that just continued to go in the South in the seventies and the early eighties, people still throw their McDonald's trash out the window and they would throw plastic bottles out the window. And you know, the, 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 the earth was a trash can and it wasn't long into probably my teen years that I started hearing more and more about pollution. And that was before we started talking about climate change, but we were talking about pollution. We were talking about plastics. We were talking about, you know, cleaning up and picking up behind yourself. And I remember, you know, being in the woods, picking up other people's trash and carrying that back. And that evolved. And then when I first started hearing about climate change, I don't remember exactly when that was, but I remember something clicked in my head. I thought, you know what, that makes sense because we're not seeing near the weather that we used to see. So that was kind of my, my move into it. Now you have to remember, I grew up in a Ronald Reagan voting, you know, fully right side conservative family. So when I started questioning everything, that is when everybody starts wondering, well, what direction are you going? But there really wasn't a direction you know, we get into this whole conversation about climate change. That's what does make me a little different is I don't really, I don't really have a direction. I can listen to a presidential candidate and with this thing that God put between these two big ears, tell whether or not I agree with that person, not based off one or two points that they make. So back to climate change. So I started questioning everything and, and then of course started reading everything I could get my hands on. Well, I didn't really understand climate change watched a few videos with Bill Nye, who's a pretty good dude there, and started learning a little bit more and then really started to learn about, you know, climate change refugees and how fishing villages are being impacted by climate change. And then of course anybody can just look at enough satellite images over the last twenty years and see the receding glaciers and you can see the impact and how much ice has fallen off the polar ice caps and the polar bears are being pushed further and further together. And so there's just so much that you you can't get away from. So I would just say that the gateway for me was just life. Like I've just always, I think if you pay attention to the out of doors, you're going to ebb and flow in the direction of the problem. You know, it's like pouring water in a bowl that has cracks. It's going to find those low points. And when you have a love for the out of doors, you're going to find those, those fractures in creation and you're automatically going to have a care for that fracture, if that makes sense. So I sure. think that's kind of how I ended up where I am. How about you, Rachel? Where did this passion for creation care come from? 
Interestingly, a very kind of similar story as Jason in childhood. I just grew up in nature. I grew up surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of acres of just wooded land. I just loved being outside in the middle of it. We had this cedar forest that we would call the fairy forest, and we would go and just build our forts out of vines and just spend all day just tramping into the earth. And I always felt like I had a connection to nature that I didn't see in other people. I couldn't really understand it or explain it well, but like Jason said, like I felt like I belonged there. I would just kind of lay um, on the ground in our cedar forest and I could just stay there for hours just looking up or just reading or just being there. And I felt so a part of it and felt so at home there. But it wasn't really until later, until start more of that started co- to connect because no one around me was talking about the environment. No one was talking about earth care in church or in my school. It just wasn't a part of conversations that were happening at all around me. And so it was something that was just very personal and meaningful to me. And it wasn't until I was in grad school for my master's in social work that my internship was at Greenhouse 17 in Lexington, Kentucky. And it's a domestic violence shelter that's located on a farm. It was the first time where I had really kind of seen this connection to nature being used to heal people and being brought into spaces for the purpose of healing and enjoyment. And it just, it connected for me. And so during that program, during that internship, it was just kind of revolutionary for me because it was the first time kind of all of these pieces were finally connecting. And I could see how my kind of calling and vocation in social work, how that could still be grounded in environmental justice and earth care, and that it wasn't kind of this private thing that I had. It was something that I could very much mold in with the vocation that I had chosen. And since then, I have been able to be a part of other programs similar to that of working with other nonprofits that are using nature in different ways for personal or for communal healing. And so it's really helped kind of ground me in that field, kind of give me that motivation to continue advocating for its care. Kind of also going back to witnessing and living in spaces of environmental injustice. Like I do see the immediate consequences and impact that it's having on people's lives. And so I think kind of this molding between this personal belonging and this reciprocal relationship that I feel as though I'm in with the natural world, but also in just being in relationship with human and non-human beings of wanting to also care for them has really kind of motivated me to do this work. There was a period of time, I think I was in physical science, can't remember what grade it was, but I remember the first time I ever learned that we put out carbon dioxide, trees take in carbon dioxide, trees put out oxygen, and we take in oxygen. I remember the day specifically that I learned that. And I remember asking my teacher, so you're telling me that if you locked me into an airtight room 
and I could get enough plants in there with me, they would produce oxygen. She said, if you could get the water and the sunlight to them to keep alive, and that blew my mind. That was the first time I was introduced to symbiotics. I grew up in, in Baptist circles that were very much, no, you're here to rule over the earth. Like you're here to, to dominate the earth. And I have personally and have had for years much more of a Native American approach to that is there's no, we are a part of the earth. Like we're in partnership and the earth gives to us and we get back to the earth. And, you know, people used to think that was just metaphorical, but now we know that's actually quite literal and more than just carbon dioxide and oxygen. So that was another very pivotal moment. In America, we had this idea of ownership. I own that piece of land. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we don't own any of it, but we're responsible for all of it. And I think something you mentioned of kind of the religious thought around the earth is here for us to dominate and to rule over. I think that's very pervasive here in the South of kind of that thought and that understanding and just kind of that biblical translation. It has been, but don't you think it's shifting a little bit? Because mm-hmm. like with this idea of local, we eat local, right? Local source, local grown. We know where our food comes from. I think people are moving more into the idea of, yeah, but, but we've got to care for this one little spot because I think another issue with global warming is people think way too big because it is a huge issue, but they think, well, we've got to stop the polar ice caps from melting when what they don't realize is what you do with that four square foot section of earth that your feet are standing on top of right now is what matters in this moment. And that translates into a bigger meta narrative. So don't you think that's changing a little bit, especially as we have this whole local movement and the idea of people want to know where their food comes from and such as that? I definitely do see it changing. I wish that Christianity would have been at the forefront of that and would have been the lead in changing that. But I feel like Christianity is catching up to a more secular response to scientific thought, in fact, and now kind of translating the Bible in order to support that instead of the reverse. And so I do see it changing. Um, I wish we would have just been doing this for much longer and would have actually been leading this. (laughs) That's Christianity period though. It's just like catching (laughs) up with evolutionary biology, right? In the beginning, oh, that's just a bunch of junk, man. They're just, they're just making that up as they go along. And that's like, oh, wait a minute. We got to figure out how to, to make all this work, you know, or, or in a more, more common sense, they drinking beer. You know, in the South, the pastor wasn't allowed to drink a beer. You know, and it's, it hasn't been in the past 10 years that that could actually happen in the South to where he wouldn't be fired for it. It's like we're always catching up in Christianity. But I do feel like that Christians are on the forefront of that fight. They just may not identify themselves in that way. But I, I do know a lot of folks who love the earth and love Jesus and and they're in that front lines. And, and this is terrible to say. You might have to edit this one out. But sometimes they don't tell people they're Christians because then people won't work with them. <laughs> just because of the damage that Christianity has done in creation care. And I, I think, man, we have we've got to shift perspective. You even see the Christian community, how it's responded to COVID, how it's responded to the, the racial tension we've had. Like, so, man, really, come on. Like, you we got to move into 2020. We got to get out of 1965, you know? And I think that 
to climate change is the same way. And I hate to paint it as a political thing, but in some ways it is a political thing. Down here, we have churches everywhere. We have churches that run six or 700 people that is six miles from where I'm sitting right now that has opened their services back up wide open, children's church, the full deal. And we have other churches that haven't opened yet. They're still doing online services. So that's, that's how broad it is here. And it's the same with climate change. I think I told you guys the other night, I, I read a study that said the majority of conservative voters under the age of 30 would list climate change as one of their top five major issues when selecting a presidential candidate. That's huge. So that I, I do see that perspective changing specifically in younger conservatives. So I, I think that, you know, here it's that it is that broad. You might talk to somebody from First Baptist Church, Chitlin Switch, Alabama, that would say, you know, climate change is just a joke. And you might talk to someone from First Baptist Church, you know, in nowhere, Georgia, and they might say, Oh no, that's very real. It's hard. But I do think it's gaining momentum. And that brings me hope. In this episode, we're talking to Jason Lyle and Rachel Jones about distinctly American cultural tensions. However, you should know that our dream is that this podcast will grow into more of an international focus. Indeed, the Earthkeepers Network must be a global one because we're all in this together. We invite you to participate in this expansion project in two ways. First, you can send us an email to suggest future guests and even better to introduce us to them. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter of this podcast to help us expand our scope and increase the frequency of our episodes. We'll tell you more about that opportunity in the near future. For now, though, we continue our conversation with Rachel and Jason. The two of you, I think, might have an answer to this question that I have, and we're speaking pretty loosely about the church, but I'm wondering if it might just be part of the church or even perhaps the American church. I'm not sure. But both of you have worked cross-culturally. Both of you have done environmental work in other cultures. And I'm wondering, what is your perception of that when you think about maybe expressions of church in other cultures? Do you see the same dynamic or is this something that's uniquely American? I don't always see the same dynamic because the other cultures where I have worked with this, they're more dependent on the land. And so they already are more connected. And in some cultures, there's also a kind of religious history of before maybe Christianity was brought in of the natural world world being very part of their spirituality and their religion. And I think that still exists within their culture. So I don't see the same context in other places because I think there is more dependence. And I think they've been able to maybe hold on to cultural elements that are more um, in relationship with the earth than maybe we have in the U.S., even though we, I mean, we have phenomenal history with indigenous peoples um, that we could be learning so, so much from. It's just 
been decimated by Western culture. It's had devastating consequences. Yeah, uh, completely agrarian cultures are very different than we are. And in in the Ugandan context, it's kind of a given that you would care for the earth. It's kind of a given that you would take care in how you plant and how you harvest and how you dig because their grocery store is to walk out in the field and pick it. And when you're in Uganda, there, there is no empty land. If it's there, it's planted with something. So I think that the idea of earth care is there, but not the idea of climate change. I think you, for mm-hmm. me, like when you bring up the idea of climate change, it's almost like, man, we just want to eat tomorrow. I think out of this conversation, there's sort of a new insight that's emerging for me. I'm not even sure how to put it into words, but I like the fact that we've moved away from that sort of demonization of the American church. That sometimes happens, right? I mean, they're the cause of every problem we have with the environment. And we know that's not true, but I think I hear the two of you saying that, sure, there are different perspectives that different churches and different cultures bring. There are different perspectives that in you know other indigenous religions or, or spiritual traditions bring to the conversation. And it makes me wonder if somehow that isn't part of the way forward, is that maybe different cultures, different contexts have different parts of the puzzle. And that if we could just sort of have conversation that brings these ideas together, perhaps we could learn from one another and maybe recover the pieces of our own perspective and practice that are missing from people who actually do it well. Well, I think there's just a lot of voices that have to come to that table. You know, the church is shifting in a lot of ways. I was listening to your episode, Church of the Wild, and I think those movements are there. You know, I pastored a cowboy church for 14 years in a barn, and that was very much centered around creation care in a lot of different ways. So I do think the church is moving in that direction. There are just a lot of voices that have to come to the table. You know, the vegan voice and the dairy farmer voice and the local source beef voice and the, you know, commercial slaughterhouse voice and all these voices have to create what's going to sound like a cacophony, but it's actually going to be a symphony if everybody was listening to one another. There's bits and pieces in all of our voices that mold and shape our minds. I'll walk away from this conversation and go home tonight changed a little bit because Rachel's given me new things to think about and you've given me new things to think about. And that's the importance of the conversation is, is giving voice to, the, to people to talk, to have conversations. Rachel, what's your perspective on that in terms of the potential for for conversation, for exchange, for for mutual learning? I mean, especially in a university setting, I think that becomes even more of a pressing issue because people are there for that express purpose to hear perspectives that they maybe have not been exposed to before. But how do you think about that possibility of the dynamic that we're talking about so far? I think the possibility is definitely there. And... I agree that we need so many more voices kind of as part of this conversation. But I also think in order for that to happen, there's people that need to kind of step away from the table or to step away from the conversation in order to amplify other people's voices that are not being heard, especially from people of color and marginalized populations. 
who are disproportionately impacted by the negativity of climate change and environmental injustice. I think the potential is there, but for it to be realized, I think people have to be willing to step away in order to amplify someone else's voice. That's a very good point. I mean, when you look at communities in the U.S. that haven't had clean drinking water in a decade, but again, it, it really does take people amplifying those voices because most people have forgotten that communities don't have clean drinking water. And so it's continued to continuing to amplify those personal stories in order to move away from the political, I think, is how we make progress in that. Let me take this just a step further and ask you both if you think there isn't possibly potential in in the spiritual as a bridge. I'll start by asking, you know, when you think about your own relationships to creation, how much a part of, of that relationship is grounded in the spiritual dimension? All of it. So we're going to stay in the Southern context in Southeast United States. You know, a pastor who is raising two kids with a wife or three kids or four kids stands up in his pulpit and starts declaring climate change issues. He's putting liberal on himself. He's going to lose the majority of his congregation. It is definitely a spiritual conversation. It's a spiritual conversation to the point that people are going to have to have a spiritual transformation to ever grasp what it's going to take to fix it. It is without a doubt spiritual. But let me, let me problematize that a bit because I think what you're talking about is the religious and not necessarily the spiritual because you know, you've both made the point that we need to, to try to pull the issue back from the political framework because that will make conversation more possible. But I wonder if the religious framework isn't as contentious, right? I mean, I don't think I have as much hope for the religious conversation about creation care as I do for the spiritual conversation. Yeah, I think the reason why I went there, though, is, and there again, I'm sticking to the Southern context. Here, spiritual does mean religious. You know, if you continue down that same road, if you wear Buddhist prayer beads and you go and you yoga and, and you meditate and you have breathing exercises, oh, well, you're a, you're a hippie liberal. You know, you probably vote, vote. I mean, it, I'm, I'm telling you, man, it is so interwoven into our culture. That's why to create big shift. Right. And when I say big shift, I'm talking about, as Rachel said, we're going to bring in more individual conversations to the table to find those conversations down here. You have to find people who have already started to change the way they're thinking and to change the way that people think spiritually in the South is to change the direction of how that's being delivered from a pulpit. Now, to carry that to your point, a spiritual awakening in the South is inevitable. And I say that because through the whole COVID thing, churches saw, you know, without having services at all, their views were growing. People are looking for answers. So that platform is being broadened. But when we say spiritual and we say religious, I get exactly what you're saying. And I agree with it 100%. Definitely not arguing with it. But when you take the average person, they don't know how to separate those two things. The minds that I'm talking about that we need to tap into and say, hey, have you thought about how this works? They've never separated that. So I, I do think that from a 
church standpoint, there's got to be a, a, a reformation. Maybe that's what I'm, the word I'm trying to get out there. There's got to be a reformation. You know, it's uh, someone like Martin Luther that, that challenged the status quo to say, no, this is ridiculous. Why are you still believing this? And get that into the depth of the church because I still do. I, I do still believe in the power of the church, especially as a voice for the voiceless, the voice for those that, as Rachel said, can't come to the conversation. It's up to the church to put those people in the position to be in the conversation. If someone does not care about creation and they do not care about climate change, I would say that they are spiritually stunted somewhere. Like there's not been a connection made somewhere because if you love Jesus or if you love God or if you love the great spirit or if you love Allah or if you love whatever it is that you love, you love what that made and you live in harmony with it. And I I just think that whole conversation, it all just ties together. You know that you're not going to have any friends left after this podcast episode <laughs> airs, right? I don't have it too, anyhow. You're one <laughs> okay, well, then you're safe. You're safe. <laughs> Rachel, I want to hear your take on that. Even just like first kind of step away from environmental justice, even when we use social justice or justice, it can be a red flag in the South. Not even talking about climate change, not even talking about the environment. I've struggled using it at my institution because just social justice by itself is seen as kind of this progressive liberal idea. And so even kind of backing up, it goes back to kind of what Jason is saying of how intertwined spirituality is with religion here and kind of this need for an awakening It's going to be difficult, I think, to advocate for environmental justice and to create lifestyle change when we're not even just talking about justice. But it's interesting because in the fall, I was actually doing research around climate change and how to talk about it in this area in forms of like adaption programs and mitigation programs and what it would take to kind of increase conversation around climate change specifically where I am. And I was really focusing on faith leaders. I think they they carry so much weight in this region that they have to be a part of this conversation in order for change to happen. They have to be in a position where they are spearheading these conversations and leading their congregations because without our faith leaders, it's going to take us a while. And so in order to see change with just justice, in order to lead to environmental justice, it really has to come from faith leaders in order for majority to follow. You're always going to have pockets of people, but I think for widespread change, we have to get faith leaders involved in this conversation. So I'm thinking back to where we started the conversation, I'm thinking, Rachel, of your story of lying on the ground, and somehow that was your connection point to the earth. Jason, I'm thinking of you rolling around in the leaves. <laughs> Again, Still sometimes. <laughs> yes, well, you should, brother, you should. Thinking about that experience, I think about my own experience. When I want to touch God, <laughs> when I want to find my center, 
in my head, I go to a place in a valley in the Cascade Mountains. And in that place is a glade that is full of pine needles that have fallen over hundreds of years. And I just kind of burrow down in the pine needles. And for me, that's where I hear the heartbeat of God. So I can't help but wonder, when you think about your experiences, the experiences of touching the earth in particular, were those not spiritual experiences for you? And then my corollary question is, if that's the case, can we really assume that most people have not had an experience like that, where somehow they have touched the realm of spirit, touched God even, in their experiences with creation? And so I'll ask you those questions, but I think that's what I'm getting at when I ask, could a better starting place for the conversation be in that spiritual place where maybe everyone has had some sort of experience? Yeah, and look how right the ground is right now, right? Because you go to the mountain bike trail right now. I've been mountain biking since 1998, and I have never seen this many cars parked in the parking lot. Wind up out on the road. A hike up Stone Mountain is the biggest mountain here in the Atlanta area at least once a week, sometimes twice. You're parking in the overflow parking lot on the side of the road. Never. I've never seen that. State parks are full. One of our state parks, for a little while, they were turning people around at the entrance. They would not let any more in. The ground is right for people to have those experiences, which, you know, if people really believe in God, the power of God, the orchestrated power of God, Look at how all these pieces are coming together. So we got COVID, right? Well, that's terrible. Yes, it is terrible. Look how the pace of life has slowed down. Look at how I can see Atlanta from coming up coming up the I-75 now because there's no smog. I have the ability to, to slow down and to take in life, to cook with my wife, to think about my food more. Oh, we have food shortage. Oh, where does my food come from anyhow, right? All of these things are starting to happen that's creating fertile ground for people to have those experiences. I'm very hopeful that it's creating scenarios where people will have those spiritual experiences because that is where it changes. People start looking for answers when they have those experiences in nature with God that says, hey, this is something much bigger than myself. I definitely see the potential or I hope that there's potential to make that connection Um, because I definitely see that as being a huge part of my life. I can still remember being given kind of like a writing assignment and just like elementary or middle school of just like I had to like write a paper on like where I felt like most connected to God. And I like wrote about the cedar forest on our property. And so even though I couldn't kind of put it in spiritual terms, like I connected in that way and I continue to still do that. So I hope that there is potential to connect on kind of that spiritual level with other people. And like Jason was saying, that's it's been the same here. More people, I've seen more people outside this summer than I have in a long time. Hopefully it will lead to just kind of this deeper relationship and respect that people have with the earth now that they are maybe even linked for the first times kind of connecting to it in some way, whether it is just walking on kind of a nature trail that's probably has always been 10 minutes from their home. But I think there is really great potential here for that connection to happen. 
and could be a really magical place to kind of start that conversation. Both of you, I know to be people of hope and optimism. And I think what I'd like to ask you to do is, is help our listeners to have hope and optimism and maybe just give them some advice, especially for people who live in contexts of resistance, where they're oftentimes the only people really who think as they do. What would you say to them in order for them to find hope, in order for them to to keep on standing for what they believe? Something that's been helpful for me is to pay attention to grassroots initiatives that are happening elsewhere (laughs) and to be reminded that change can happen is really nice. It can be very discouraging when very few people around you care for the environment to the same level that you do. It can be very discouraging to kind of live in that space. And so something that's been helpful and has given me hope is looking at initiatives that are taking place globally at very local grassroots levels. And also being able to interact regularly with people younger than myself who are coming into college much more aware of the environment. Their understanding, their interest, their pursuit of this topic gives me a lot, a lot of hope for moving forward. Like Jason mentioned earlier, we see a lot more younger people who recognize and who are stating that climate change is one of kind of their main concerns, which has not happened with really any other generation. It is a huge concern for younger people right now across the political spectrum and the religious spectrum. I think if we can keep the hope alive in them, (laughs) that we'll see really great change. But my fear is that they'll get discouraged with this as well. And so it's finding ways to have hope myself so that I can then spread that hope to other people. I would just say that it will get better. The question is just how bad does it have to get before it will? I would encourage somebody, if you want to have hope, man, first of all, get outside and enjoy what you have. Fall more in love with it every single day. Mm -hmm. If you fall more in love with it, then you'll be more of an advocate for it. And when you go, if you talk to people, you don't have to be combative. You don't have to be, you don't have to be abrasive. You just have to have a love, a love for God, a love for the person you're talking to and a love for the creation that you stand on. So, and educate yourself for goodness sake, man. Don't be a talking head. Educate yourself, read, understand, have conversations. And if you don't know what you're talking about, just simply keep your mouth shut and listen. That's so easy to do. And that'll bring you more hope than anything. (laughs) Listen to the person across from you talk. No matter what viewpoint they have, if you think they're, you know, the biggest idiot that ever walked the face of the earth, you know, God spoke through an ass one time, he can still do it again across the table from you. So (laughs) there's this idea of, and, and I love Rachel said it a little while ago about these conversations, have those. And when it's with someone that you do not agree with, listen to every word they say and ask yourself, what can I take away from this? How am I, how am I looking at this wrong? Because I promise you, the only way we're ever going to fix this thing is by starting with ourselves. We have to fix ourselves. We have to fix the way we're looking at the problem before we can ever, 
ever start to try to fix somebody else. So hope, man, yeah, hope is there. And, and I do believe it's all in how you choose to look at things. Grab a garbage bag and head up the side of a hiking trail this weekend and just start picking up trash. And, you know, when people see you doing that, you'll be shocked at how many people will go ahead of or behind you and start picking up more trash and bringing it and putting it in your bag. That's hope. You're given hope and perspective. Just keep your perspective where it needs to be. And yeah, just keep believing it'll get better because trust me, it will. Don't know how bad it's got to get before it does, but it will get better. And to add on to that, I think that was a really good point of finding ways that you can create change in your own life. You are never going to be able to do everything. And it's daunting to think that way. It gets very overwhelming very quickly. And so people just kind of pull away from it. And so finding things that are in your control to change, to create a lifestyle that actually gives back to the earth in some way. There's always something that people can do. I mean, even with my college students who a lot of times have very low resources at their disposal, they're always finding new ways to create lifestyle changes. And I think when we can do that in our personal lives, I think there is hope in that of if I can create change, then other people can create change as well. I really think that this is going to end up being a powerful episode for people because I really, really believe that people have no idea what to do when they feel alone, right? I think that you speak with authority of experience that, that you know what it's like to be alone. And so I think that for people listening to, to advice, to your stories, I think that's going to definitely give them the hope that we're talking about. So thank you. We've been talking with Rachel Jones and Jason Lyle both of them courageous earth keepers who educate and advocate for creation care in the face of cultural resistance. Earth Keepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When earth keepers stand together, They amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. We invite you to support us by becoming a subscriber. You can help us reach more people with our message by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts. And please, share Earthkeeper's podcast with anyone you know who seeks a better relationship to the Earth. This podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to accelerate the transformation of humanity into life-giving inhabitants of creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online or write to us at podcast at circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music, Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.